Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood, after he begot Arphaxad. Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ryu. After he begot Ryu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ryu lived 32 years and begot Sarag. After he begot Sarag, Ryu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and there and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That name, Arphaxad, that, that one always trips me up. I'm not quite Ar Ar Arphaxad. <laughs> I could say it with the flat, nasally Chicago accent, Arphaxad. <laughs> Yeah. So there you have it, uh, another list of names. Uh, this time these names trace uh, the line from Shem all the way down to Abram. Um, we'll look at that in some detail tonight. Um, just by way of recap, last time we were together, which would have been two weeks ago, we looked at the first nine verses of chapter 11, and we looked at the Babel account, how uh, after the flood... Uh, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and we saw the men after the flood uh, that survived the flood, the, the generations after Noah, as they began to fill the earth, they gathered themselves together at, in, the, in the plains of Shinar to build a tower, to build a city, to build a great city, a monument to their own self, their own pride. So they build this temple, and then we saw how the Lord looks down from heaven. In fact, as they were trying to build this temple, this tower into the heavens, well, we're noting how God has to sort of stoop down to kind of see 
what they're doing, you know, kind of like how you look at the ground and say, oh, the ants are building an anthill. You know, that's kind of what was going on there. And he confuses the language. He says, uh, lest they put their hands or nothing that they do now will, will be withheld from them. Uh, not that the Lord was afraid of what they were doing, but the Lord was, in a sense, sparing them from another situation that would prompt another, let's say, flood-like judgment. So you have, in a sense, a quote-unquote gracious judgment. I almost hesitate to put those two words together in one sentence. But this is, in a sense, a gracious judgment in the sense that instead of killing them all, what does he do? He disperses them. He confuses the languages. And, and we see there, uh, from that point, then the people who are together as one with one language are now spread out amongst many people with many languages and then the purposes of God originally after the flood when he tells Noah to fill the earth and multiply, we then see that actually happening. We see that uh, it, this is sort of a, uh, in chapter 11, the first nine verses, it explains why you have chapter 10, why you have all of these names. And we saw when we looked at chapter 10, they were divided according to their families, their clans, their languages, and their nations. Uh, so... Why was that? Because of what happened at Babel. They were attempting, they were, in a sense, uh, rebelling against God by not spreading out, so God disperses them by confusing the language. And, and you know, if you think about it, it really isn't until modern times that we're even now, through our own ingenuity, sort of trying to overcome what's ha what happened at Babel. I mean, we have you know, vast technologies at our disposal to help translate. But even with all of that, there's still confusion. There's still never going to be a, a one, um, you know, sort of united front like this, at least not until the end times and, and, and so on. But, but even now, mankind in its own way is trying to, uh, you know, you see them trying to form, you know, one uh, government, one world this, one world that, and, and and even now, you still see the effects of Babel um, uh, rearing their ugly heads here. But that was last time. So we saw judgment in the form of confusion. Now, as we look at the rest of chapter 11, uh, we're going to see two genealogies here. Uh, by genealogy, I mean the word Toledot. You see that in verse 10. The, this is the genealogy of Shem. And then you see it in verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. That's that Hebrew word toledot we've been looking at. So it is a, it is a marker in Genesis that shows us um, a new section. Uh, so the section in uh, verses 10 through 26 is one of the shorter ones uh, of the toledots. And it, it speeds through 10 generations to get you from Shem to Terah and Abram. And then really the genealogy of Terah is going to take us from chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to chapter 25, verse 11, because um, we're going to see the story of Abraham unfold from this. Uh, he is the, the, the main character, at least the main human character, uh, in the genealogy of Terah. So you see the genealogy of Shem, the genealogy of Terah. And then just as a theme that unites uh, this passage is the Lord is faithful as the line of promise continues from Shem to Abram. That's essentially what we're seeing here. 
as the line of promise, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, whom perhaps Adam and Eve thought that might have been Seth, whom Lamech perhaps thought might have been Noah. Uh, Now we see that line continue. It is marching along. God is faithful. He made a promise back in Genesis 3.15. He's going to keep it. And he's going to keep it by preserving this line from Shem to Abram to Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and now Christ, and now us. So that's what we see in this passage, or what we will see in this passage. Um, Your handout, you have uh, three points. Really, the text only has two points. I threw a third point in there, because why not? Uh, (laughs) But the, the third point is... I want to offer some final words because this section closes primeval history. Uh, By primeval history, it's the first main part of Genesis. Even though the Toledotes uh, mark the sections in Genesis, really you've got two main overarching sections in Genesis. You have everything before Abram and then everything after Abram. That's how Genesis really is broken up. So you've got the first 11 chapters and the final um, 39 chapters after that. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, you know, if you take a literal uh, view of the text, the first 11 chapters cover approximately 2,000 years. And then from Abraham, or Abraham to Christ is approximately 2,000 years. And then from Christ to us is approximately 2,000 years. So you're, you're seeing, um, you know, Genesis covers a vast amount of time. A vast amount of time. Um, it, it covers the most amount of time, particularly not just in the first 11 chapters, but in all 50 of its chapters, it covers the, the most amount of time uh, that we have, at least by the Bible's account. So we're going to look at uh, from Shem to Terah, We're going to look at from Terah to Abram, and then we're going to look at sort of a retrospective of Genesis 1 through 11, because I want to say some final words before we exit this section and move on into chapter 12, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks. So first, uh, from Shem to Terah, that's verses uh, 10 to 26. I'm not going to read the names again. (laughs) I'll, I'll entertain a motion to have the names entered into the record as read. We have a second, okay, all in favor say aye, aye, okay, the names have been entered into the record as read. Um, In verse 10, we're introduced to, as I said, the fifth of the ten major Toledot sections. So there's five Toledotes in the first primeval history section, then there's five Toledotes starting in chapter 11, verse 27, that carries us uh, through the rest of Genesis you might want to say six if you want to count. Like, uh, I think there's a section in there that talks about the descendants of Esau, but it's so small. Um, you can add it if you want and make it 11. Uh, either way, this is the fifth of the major genealogies or Toledotes, uh, which that word just means descendants, generations, genealogy. So, again, as I said, the book of Genesis is marking its time by these. These are the generations of. This is the genealogy of. This is the book of the genealogy of. This is the history of. However your English translation puts it. So this is a new part in the Genesis narrative. Now like chapter 5, if you remember chapter 5, it's a linear 
genealogy. And by linear, I mean it's tracing father to son to father, you know, to son to son, you know. So father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son. It's moving in a line. It doesn't mention all of the, all of the descendants. It doesn't mention, um, you know, that so-and-so had a son. It doesn't mention the names of the other sons. Uh, it just says, and he had sons and daughters. And you see that in chapter 11, too. So you're, you know, you're in, in chapter uh, 11 here, as, as you are in chapter 5, you're, you're kind of zipping through history a little while. If you remember, you know, Genesis sort of has this, okay, we're going to give you a little bit of a narrative, and then we're going to skip across a whole bunch of centuries till we get to the next narrative I want to tell you. So Genesis 5, you know, kind of zips us from, from you know, Adam and uh, Cain and Abel and Seth and, and the, the, the generation before the flood as, as the wickedness grows. And then Genesis 5 comes and it takes you from Seth all the way down to Noah real fast. Okay, it moves like through about a thousand years or so of history there to get to the flood. And then, and then it slows down and it gets to the flood and it spends three chapters on Noah and the flood and how Noah was preserved. And then you get um, another, you know, sort of the table of nations in chapter 10. All of, the, all of the nations that we see today are some way, shape, or form um, drawn and, and can be connected to these uh, names that you see in Genesis chapter 10. And then you get the Babel incident, which explains why you have these divided nations, why you have the languages, and then, you're, then we're sort of fast-forwarding again uh, from uh, Shem all the way down to Terah and Abram. So it's kind of speeding us along here. But it's a linear genealogy tracing father and son connections. Now, unlike chapter 5, what you don't see in chapter 11 is this phrase that you see repeated in chapter 5, after, you know, I'm just going to say for an example here. Uh, let's look at um, verse 9. All right. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 800 years, 815 years and had sons and daughters. And then you've got this little kind of uh, encapsulating statement. And it happens for all of them. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And that's repeated for each name, except for Enoch. We know Enoch walked with the Lord, and he was, uh, he was translated out. You don't see that in chapter 11. You don't see that little phrase that kind of goes, all the days of so-and-so were X years, and he died. It just says, uh, so-and-so begot a son at whatever age he was when he begot it. Then he lived so many more years after that point in time. He had other sons and daughters, and then it moves on to the next name. Now you're like, why that change? Well, I guess you don't need to repeat, and he died, because we know they died. <laughs> right? All these people died. Um, one commentator said, and I kind of like this, it, it's kind of showing you, because what we see here in this chapter, again, is the line of promise, right? How many sons did Noah had? He had three sons, right? Which one is the one through whom the line of promise goes? It's only one, it's Shem. Right, so you're, I, you know, the commenter said it's perhaps introducing a little bit of a mood of hope. You know that, you know, yeah, they died, but we don't need to mention that because what this line is going to do is it's going to trace all the way through the scriptures until you get to Jesus, who's going to defeat sin and death, and and there will be no more death in the new heavens and the new earth. So perhaps a mode of hope, you know, 
that's fine with me. I, I kind of like that. Um, but a couple other things I want to say here. Because, and I'm going to say that I'm a little truth in advertising here, a little full disclosure. I've always believed in six-day creation, but I want to say it was after going to the museum this last time that you know, I think it was impressed upon me again, maybe re-impressed, how important it is to take God at his word here in these, in these chapters. Um, because there are Christians, well-meaning Christians. I do not want to impugn the motives of anybody that I, you know, unless I know for sure that's why they're doing it. And they want to argue that when it says here, for example, um, Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ryu, okay, that that word begot could mean it could refer to a remote descendant. In other words, there could be many names between Peleg and Ryu. And it's just mentioning Ryu because for some reason he's important. Well, other than the fact that his name is mentioned here and probably in some genealogies in First Chronicles and perhaps in the New Testament that talk about Jesus, I don't know anything about Ryu. Right? He doesn't stand out. He, you know, Peleg stands out only because it says in his days the earth was divided. Um, and if you look at the word in Hebrew, begot, it's the word yalad. Okay? I'm teaching you a little bit of Hebrew here. It's the word yalad. And it means to beget. <laughs> it means to beget in the sense of you issued forth a child. Okay? So... Now, you can, you can make this argument that if you say so-and-so was the father of someone, yeah, the word for father can mean direct father. It can mean great-grandfather. It can mean great-great-grandfather. Same thing with the word for son. If you want to say son, well, that could mean son, grandson, great-great-grandson. But if you're using the word begot, it just means that as a father, I begot a child. That is my child, my son. Okay, and obviously there's a woman involved in that. We don't need to get into those details, but there was, it, it's a direct line. It is a father-son connection. Uh, you'd have to really do some exegetical gymnastics to try to make it fit that this is not a direct father-son connection. Um, another thing, too, is... Um, in fact, I, in, in, in fact, as I was looking at this, some, some commentaries just make this a statement like this. You know, regarding this genealogy, regarding the genealogy in chapter 5, one quote says, it is apparent that this genealogy contains gaps. Another one said, this list leaves out some names. Another one said, completely inadequate to span the gap between the flood and Abram. If they don't tell you why. They just say, it, it's, it, obviously, it contains gaps. Well, why? Why does it contain gaps? Because you have the idea of long ages and deep time and millions and billions of years, and that's out there, and that is so pervasive, and it's so strong, and it's so uh, ingrained in our culture now that you read this, and you can't take it for face value anymore. That too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and um, so, you know, going through this, 
trying to collect my thoughts here because I didn't actually write all this down. The idea, of course, is you're trying to you're trying to accommodate something, and maybe you're doing it well-intentioned, maybe you're doing it not well-intentioned, but um, I think it would have been easier for God to just make that plainly clear if he wanted to. Uh, God wrote this uh, in a way so that the people who were hearing this or perhaps reading this would be able to understand what, what God is saying. And if you just read it from a straightforward reading, if I said, Ryu lived 30 years and begot Serug, how would you understand that? That Ryu lived 30 years and begot Serug. So that, in other words, this man named Ryu, at 30 years old, had a son, and his son was Serug. That's how you would understand it. Now, if I'm reading this, I would not understand, and Ryu lived 32 years, and perhaps there were some names in between that are missing, and he had a great-great-great-great-great-grandson named Serug. Now, you, know, you just notice how many words I just added <laughs> to the words of Scripture just by saying that because I'm trying to accommodate something uh, that is uh, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-everything. Uh, no, um, there is no need to um, alter the plain reading of the text. We'll get into this in a moment more. Uh, but here, again, chapter 5, linear genealogy, tracing father-son connections. Uh, there is a difference with chapter 5. As I said, it doesn't have in all the days of so-and-so or how many years and he died. But it's, again, just tracing these, um, uh, these connections, father-son, from Shem all the way down to Terah and Abram. Another thing to note, if you look at verse 10, it says that Shem begot our Faxad two years after the flood. Two years after the flood. So now you have a time marker, okay? So if you were to take creation week as a full week, and then you were to add the numbers and the ages and the, of all the people in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 and, and, and the amount of time that they spent on the ark, and you get to this, you get approximately, we are somewhere, give or take, a year or two, it, 1,658 years after creation, okay? Somewhere around that time, okay? Give or take a year or two, depending on how you want to, you know, the, the flood doesn't give you exact, you know, this is the year it gives you months and days and so many, you know, it was the 500th year and then it was the 600th year and, and so on. But, but around the year 1,658 after, the, after creation, which would translate in our calendar to the year 2346 B.C., give or take, like I said. Not give or take a few million years here and there, give or take maybe a year or two here and there. So that's the kind of time frame we're talking about. So this genealogy begins two years after the flood, about 2300 or so BC, and then it begins to trace names. Now these names match a genealogy that you see elsewhere in scripture. If you were to look at First Chronicles, Chapter 1, I all know that you love to do your, your devotional readings through the first nine chapters of First Chronicles uh, because nothing stimulates the soul and uh, encourages one in the faith than to read names. But the names are important. I, I, don't, I, I only joke a little bit. 
Um, chapter 1, verse 17 in 1 Chronicles. Now, why is, it, why is 1 Chronicles important? 1 Chronicles is a post-exilic work. By that it mean, I mean it was written to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, after the exile. After they came out of Babylon and started to resettle in the promised land and started to rebuild the temple, Chronicles was written. Most people think it might have been Ezra who, who, who comprised it, who, who actually wrote it down. But you have here, he's writing to a bunch of people who, who have come out of 70 years of exile. In, in, a, in a lot of ways, this is sort of like how you have the Israelites on the plains of Moab getting ready to enter into the promised land. They need to know who they are, where they came from, and why they're going into the promised land. Well, you've got a bunch of people who've come out of exile who need to know who they are, why they're there, where they came from, and what they're doing. So Ezra the Chronicler says, you have a long history. You have a long history that goes all the way back. Let me tell you the names of the people who went before you. So he goes through a bunch of names. And you get to verse 17 of chapter 1. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad begot Shelah, and Shelah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now we're going to go into a little bit of Joktan here. Joktan begat Almadad, Shelah, Hazermaveth, Jira, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Ebal, Abamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. And then verse 24, Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sarig, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, who is Abraham. The sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. So again, Ezra is telling these people coming out of exile, your, 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 your forefather, Abram, this is where he came from. He descended from Shem, who descended from Noah, who descended from Adam. Right? These are your people. These are your people. You see another um, genealogy like this in Luke, Luke chapter 3. Starting in verse 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing there. Actually, I want to focus on verses 34 to 36. Now, Luke's genealogy goes backwards. So he starts with Jesus and then moves backwards until he eventually gets to Adam. Which is a a little unusual, but then Luke is writing probably to a more Gentile audience anyway. Uh, Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and moves down. All the other genealogies start with the oldest names and move uh, forward in time. But here, uh, after starting with Jesus in verse 23... Uh, a bunch of names that lead up to David, and then David uh, back. Uh, then you see in verse 34, the son of Jacob, uh, you know, Jesus. This is, again, remember, this is for Jesus. Jesus is the son of all these people, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, see these names again, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan. Oh. Wait, ooh, there's a name that's not mentioned in Genesis 10 or 11. Hold that thought. 
the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, say that ten times fast, and the son of Canaan again, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So again, this genealogy mirrors this, except for that one interesting little addition, if you will, of Canaan, or Cainan, however you want to say it, in verse 36. Now, where did that name come from? Well, the name came from the Septuagint. You're like, what's the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? Now, the Hebrews worked off of what is called the Masoretic text. Okay? The Masoretic text is a text that was eventually finalized and formalized and sort of standardized somewhere some between the 7th and 10th century A.D. All right, but it, 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 it traces its lineage all the way back. If you were to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, were, which are dated well before the Masoretic text that we have, uh, it, it comports quite nicely with the Masoretic text. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are much older. They're, uh, they were dated to around the first century B.C., and they, they, uh, the text that they have is thousands of years before that. So you have the Masoretic text, but now you have this um, uh, addition, apparently, from the Septuagint, um, which if you were to, I know we're going back and forth, but if you go back to Genesis 10, if you will, Again, this is the table of nations. Uh, the sons of Shem, I'm in verse 22, were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Ethern, Mosh. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. Uh, now, in verse 24, where it says Arphaxad, you might have a note there in the New King James. And the note says, so with the Masoretic text, or so with MT. That's what MT means, Masoretic text. So with the Vulgate, that's what the VG means, and the Targum. Um, it says in the Septuagint, that's what LXX means. Our facts had begot Canaan, and Canaan begot Salah. And then it's, you might have a footnote that says compared to Luke 3, 35, and 36. So what's going on here? Well, the best explanation that I was able to see is that Perhaps in the Masoretic text, what you have is a scribal error, and the name was left out inadvertently. The name should probably be in there. Canaan should probably be in there. Remember, the copies of the text are not inspired. The copies are copies. We have copious errors in all of the scriptures. That's why you have, if you have a good Bible or a good study Bible, you will have footnotes that will tell you, you know, this, you know, in... Some manuscripts have this. Some manuscripts have that. Okay? It's, a, it's probably a scribal error. And the reason I say it's a scribal error because I think what you have in Genesis, you can go back to it. Well, you're probably already there. You can go back to Genesis 11. There is a parallel between Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 because Genesis 5 traces 10 generations from Seth to Noah. And then at the end, Noah begets three children. And the same thing you see in Genesis 11, from Shem to 
Abram, or Shem to Terah, is ten generations. Now, if Canaan's name is not there, it's only nine generations, and then Abram becomes the tenth. But if you add Canaan's name in there, now Terah becomes the tenth, and you've got a parallel between Terah and Noah. I know this maybe is a little over your head, and you're thinking, why are you telling us all this? Because I had to read up on this and study this, so I'm going to share this information with you. The only, pro- the only thing I'm trying to get at is there's a parallel. If we include Canaan, there's a parallel in the tenth generation. Because Noah begets three sons, Terah begets three sons. And I think the, you know, the author, Moses, is trying to show us this parallel because you've got this linear generation that at the end splits into three. You saw that in Genesis 5. You've got a linear genera- uh, genealogy that at the end splits into three. Um, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so, back to Genesis 11. So again, chapter 10 shows us how Noah and his sons populated the post-flood world. Chapter 11 here now is tracing one specific line of descendants through Shem. You remember, we, we looked at some of these genealogies. Shem had five or six sons. I forgot the count. Uh, he had five or six sons, maybe seven sons. But we're only going through one of them, and that is Arphaxad. So it's very important that this line now is being shown here. This is, again, the line of promise. This is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. More on that in a moment. Another thing of note in the genealogy here that we see is the reduced lifespans. The reduced lifespans. Now, pre-flood, before the flood, man lived an average, and I did the math, so... You know, you're welcome. Man lived an average of 912 years, if you were to take. Now, a little less if you include Enoch, but Enoch's a bit of a, an outlier because he, was, he didn't die, okay? <laughs> if you include Enoch, then the average is 857 years. If you take him out, the average of the pre-flood lifespans is about 912 years with Methuselah, hitting the high water mark, no pun intended with the flood, the high water mark of 969. Now Shem, he only lived 600 years. Interesting. He did. <laughs> then if you look at the next three generations, uh, Arphaxad and Salah and Eber, their average is 445 years. If you look at the next three generations, I'm not going to go with the names. Just trust me on this. The next three generations average 237 years. So you've got 912 years, Shem 600 years. The next three generations, about 445 years. The next three after that, 237 years. It's going down, right? What's up with that? A number of things could be up with that. First, environment. Right? The flood was not just a lot of rain. The flood was a catastrophic event. It says that the great fountains of the deep broke open. Okay? And that the rains and the water subsisted for 150 days. And then they receded. And then the world that they stepped out into was not the world that they left when they went on the ark. It is a completely different world. The geology is different. The geography is different. The climate is different. In fact, again, if you were to go to the Creation Museum, they would date the Great Ice Age as to right after the flood. Why? Well, you have all of this volcanic activity. 
that would have shot uh, dust and soot and, and all kinds of particulates into the atmosphere. You would have had warm water that would have uh, created, uh, it would have evaporated and it would have created snow. Uh, the, the particulates in the atmosphere would have reflected sunlight, so you would have had colder temperatures on, in the air, warm water, that makes for a lot of snow. A lot of snow. A lot of snow. How much snow? A lot of snow, okay? You would have had an ice age. It's colder, right? People would have died in a more harsh environment. Diet. Diet. What was the one thing in diet that changed when Noah got off the ark? We can eat meat. We can eat hamburgers and steaks and chicken and runzas. I don't know if they had runzas back then. But for those who are listening to this on a recording, that's a Nebraska thing, okay? <laughs> if you're not from Nebraska. Diet would have changed, right? They are meat eaters. Guess who else are meat eaters now? The animals, okay? So you might have had scarcity as far as diet goes as, you know, they probably are dying to animals and so on and so forth. You have scarcity. Again, the, the, the climate, the environment they walked into, it would have been much harder to grow and sustain a crop. You had a genetic bottleneck. You had perhaps a few million people before the flood, jumps down to eight people after the flood. Okay, you lost a lot of genetic information. A lot of genetic information, okay? So whatever genetic anomalies and abnormalities that Noah and his three sons had, that's it. That's the, that's the gene pool you're working with now. Again, we are still talking 4,000, 4,500 years ago, so the gene pool would have been a little more pure, a little closer to creation, but it's still a reduced gene pool. Right? All of that genetic information, gone. So which one is it? I like to opt for all of the above. A reduced gene pool, scarcity, diet changes, and environment would sort of lead to this reduce in the lifespans. One more item of note before we move on out of the section. It says Peleg, remember Peleg was the guy in whose days the earth was divided. Uh, the you know, so in other words, you can date the Tower of Babel incident to around the days of Peleg. Peleg was born, if you, again, if you go by the, the numbers here. Now, this might change if you add Canaan in there because we don't know what his numbers were. So now, give or take 30 or so years, okay? But just going by what we see here in Genesis 11, Peleg was born 101 years after the flood. So now you have a pretty good idea as to when the Tower of Babel incident occurred, which would be around... 1757 after creation, or 2247 B.C. is around the time of the Tower of Babel. Now, what's, what are we to derive from all of this? Okay. It's a lot of information for these first uh, 16 verses. Well, the history of the people of Israel is beginning to take shape now, right? This is, again, remember who this is being written for. It's written for uh, the, the, the liberated slaves in the Exodus as they're about to enter into the Promised Land. And they need to know this information. They need to know how they got here. What happened? Why is the world the way it is? Well, we're telling you this. This is the history of the people of Israel. It's beginning to take shape. 
From Adam, we trace the line of promise, the promise that was made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. We trace that line from uh, Seth all the way down to Noah. And then from the repopulation of the earth after the flood, we look at that same line now from Shem, one of his three sons, all the way down to Arphaxad and then to Terah and so on and so forth. This is their history. Guess what? It's our history too. This is our history too. If Genesis 10 through 11 verse 9 shows us God's intentions fulfilling the earth in order to sort of uh, fulfill the command that he gives to Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, uh, Babel was a way to force mankind to do that, which is what they did. Verses 10 through 26 here show us how God is going to bring salvation and redemption through the promise. The promise that he's going to verbally iterate to Abram, and then that will be delivered on to his sons and his son, and then to Moses, and then to the people of Israel, and then to Christ, and then to us. This is our history too. Okay. Point two. (laughs) From Terah to Abram, verses 27 to 32. So at the end of this genealogy, we get another genealogy. We see the in verse 26, we see, similar to chapter 5, the mention of three sons. Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Um, there's some question as to, you know, sometimes you take the order to indicate the oldest to the youngest. Uh, there might be uh, some good arguments to be made that perhaps Haran was the oldest. Um, the reason I say that is because there's, if, if you take Abram as the oldest, there's a little bit of a discrepancy in the ages when Terah died. So it's best to perhaps think that Haran might have been the oldest of the three sons. I won't go into that detail, don't worry. I'm just kind of giving you that there. But at the end of the genealogy, again, we see this mention of three names. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then with verse 27, now we're breaking into a new section Another Toledoth. This is the genealogy of Terah. Now, as I said now, we've, at verse 27, we've left primeval history now. All right? We are now in what we're going to call patriarchal history, the history of the patriarchs, the history of the fathers of the Jewish nation, the fathers of Israel. And it begins with a brief story here of Terah, Abram's father, and how he got from Ur of the Chaldeans about halfway to Canaan. Okay? Uh, he didn't go all the way. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into that. But we've got, this is going to take us now, the rest of the book of Genesis, uh, the generations of Terah will take us all the way to, as I said, Genesis 25, verse 11. But after the dispersion that we see at Babel, uh, Terah and his family, perhaps he migrated there, perhaps his ancestors migrated there, either way, they are now living in Ur of the Chaldees, or Ur of the Chaldeans. The best estimate for this is that this is in southeast Iraq today, southeast Iraq, where the uh, Tigris and Euphrates kind of get close to or they meet. Perhaps, yeah, we don't necessarily know where Eden was, but it could have been there. Um, It's in an area called Mesopotamia, which just means between two rivers, (laughs) which is between the Euphrates and the Tigris is Mesopotamia. So he's in the area of Mesopotamia, He's in that area of southeast Iraq along the Euphrates River. Now we see that Haran and Abram's brother, or we see Haran, Abram's brother, and Lot's father, he dies in Ur. So this first guy, Haran, 
uh, as I said, probably the oldest. We learn that he died uh, before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So uh, what was once three sons is now down to two. Now Haran, of course, is the father of Lot. We know Lot from later on. Um, we know a lot about Lot. <laughs> uh, Lot is Abram's nephew. He is Haran's son, and Haran is Abram's brother. It almost sounds like a like talking about Sutnites, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, so and so that's so and so's nephew's cousin's brother's son's sister-in-law. Um, so you have Haran. He dies while they're in Ur. While in Ur, Abram, whose name means exalted father, bit of an irony because he has no children yet. <laughs> Later on, he's going to be called father of a multitude. He's still, at least at that point, he's got one kid. <laughs> 17. He's got, he's got Isaac already. Or at least Ishmael. By 17. Um, but anyway, you have Abram here, whose name means exalted father. And Nahor, they take wives. That's the next verse in verse 29. They take wives. The name of Abram's wife is Sarai. Her name is means princess. And the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah. Milcah is the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So in other words, uh, Nahor marries his niece. Like, that sounds gross. Okay. <laughs> you have to remember, the, the prohibitions against interrelations between family members has not been given yet. Right? The genetic pool at this point is still pretty strong that even genetic deficiencies, if they were to be propagated in the family, would not be devastating. It's only until you get to the time of Moses, which is some hundreds of years after this, that you get that uh, prohibition against marrying someone who is closely related to you. And in the case of Sarai, Sarai is Abram's uh, half-sister. So they shared a father, but not a mother. Right? We will learn that later in the story of Abram when we get to it. So Haran dies, Abram and Nahor take wives. Uh, we learn the relations there. Abram's wife, Sarah, is his half-sister. Nahor's wife, Milcah, is his niece. And then we learn that Sarah was barren. We see that in verse 30. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Now, uh, we know from this culture that barrenness would have been looked down upon. Right? It would have been seen as you are cursed by the gods because it was your purpose is to bear children. So she is barren. Now this is, this is not an uncommon theme that we see running through redemptive history, is it? Right? In fact, we're going to look through Genesis as we go through Genesis. Sarai is barren for a time. Rebecca is barren for a time. Rachel is barren for a time. There's, there's a theme running here. What's the theme? Well, A, apparently Abram and his sons and his grandsons seem to marry barren women. But what's really the theme that's working on here is that it's showing that this, this again, this is the line of promise. Okay, The promise is not going to come through human effort. right? Remember what happened when Abram and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. They got Ishmael, right? And Ishmael caused all kinds of problems. No, what was that? It's still today, exactly. Uh, Sarah was barren. This is a common theme. And it's again to show that salvation is through the promise of God. It is through grace. 
God is going to open the wombs of all these women and in due time. Right? We'll see this when we get to Genesis 18. He tells Sarah, you will have a child. And, of course, she laughs. Abram laughs. And then they name the kid Laughter. Right? Uh, Rebecca is barren for a time until they, you know, they pray to the Lord and the Lord opens her womb. Rachel has to go through all kinds of uh, shenanigans to try to get children, saying, here, Jacob, take my maidservant. And then, you know, poor Jacob, you know, he comes home from a hard night working in the field, and, and you know, it's like he sees his wives and their servants squabbling as to who gets to sleep with them that night. He's like, I'm going to go back out into my garage and call me when you get this all figured out. Barrenness is a theme here. Now, sometime after the death of Haran, again, this is approximately now, give or take, 2078 after creation, or 1926 B.C., Terah takes Abram, Sarai, and Lot, and they go from Ur, and they go on their way to the land of Canaan. That's in verse 31. So they leave Nahor behind. Now, why do they leave Nahor behind? Well, here's my thinking on this, right? We don't have, well, we, have, do, we do have some scripture that kind of backs this up. I think the call of Abram was given at this time, and that he moves, he, in a sense, convinces his dad, we need to go to Canaan. So, so then his dad, Terah, says, okay, let's go. And they go from Ur, now we're going to see they stop halfway along the way. Nahor just decides to stay, I'm going to stay home, right? But we see that the call was given to Abram, because if you look in the book of Acts, chapter 7, this is Stephen speech, right? Stephen has a speech. Chapter 6, Stephen is mighty. Uh, he has a mighty witness and no one can dispute him. Uh, and then they, they put him on trial and he gives this long address in Acts chapter 7. And essentially what Stephen does is he recounts the history of the Jewish people. And in verse 2 of chapter 7, Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So we see there from Acts, according to Stephen, that Abram was called while still in Ur of the Chaldees. Which would kind of explain why they go to Canaan. Why would... Why would, Her- or why would Terah decide to leave and go to Canaan on his own? More than likely, the call ends up here. Um, again, Nahor, at the prompting of Abram, travels to Canaan, but stops in Haran. Now, the, the city Haran is a different word in Hebrew than the name Haran, that is his son. Uh, there's a, a sound in Haran, it's a Haran. So. Uh, but anyway, there's a city there. And these would be cities that are still, these are Mesopotamian cities. These are still very uh, idolatrous cities, pagan cities. So Terah moves from one pagan city to another pagan city. Right? And then that's where Terah dies, and then eventually Abram will complete uh, the journey. So they come here, they come to Haran, uh, they leave Ur to come to Canaan, and they stop halfway along the way. Now, and then we see in verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. As I said, this is sort of the beginning of the story of Abram. We're going to see this more as we move on in chapter 12 and following. But the great progenitor of the Jewish people here, Abram, 
um, was at this time a pagan. He was not a, a God follower at this time. Right? Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3, Joshua tells his people, says, you know, your forefather Abram and his father Terah, they served other gods when they were in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram was a pagan, right? He was not Jewish. <laughs> he, was, he was a pagan. He was, yes, he was a Shemite. Yes, he was descended from Shem. He was in that line. But we shouldn't think that just because we see these names in chapter 11, that each and every single one of them was a righteous man following the Lord, serving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of them, maybe they were. We don't know. We're just not told. Abram was a pagan. And while this is the line of promise, God still must call his people. We're going to look at the call in two weeks when we look at chapter 12. But God will speak to Abram. And he's going to tell him, get up out of your land and go to a land that I will show you. Right? And then Hebrews will uh, flesh that out a little bit. It says, hey, Abraham, by faith. By faith, when he heard the voice of the Lord, got up and went, not knowing where he was going to. Right? Isn't that a typical man? Right? You get in the car, we're going to drive, and we're not, you know, why don't you stop and ask for directions? Nope. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to, and when I get there, we'll find out. Okay? No, the Lord will tell him, right? The Lord will say, this is where I want you to be. God must call his people out of darkness and into light. Abram, at this point in time, is still a pagan idolater. Now, just quickly, hopefully, we'll see, a few words in retrospective on Genesis 1 through 11. These chapters are, are very important. They're very important. Why? Because they form the foundation of our faith. If you do not have what we see here in Genesis 1 through 11, you do not have a creation, you do not have an Adam, you do not have a fall. You do not have a picture of judgment in the flood. You do not have the confusion of the languages and how the nations were built. You don't have any of that. And if you don't have any of that, what do you got? Nothing. You've got man's opinions, right? Well, how did the people come? Well, we came up, you know, there was amoebas, and then they formed into slimy things, and then slimy things formed into slimier things, and then less slimy things, and then little legs grew up, and then they crawled out of the water and became monkeys, and then monkeys swung from trees, and then they stopped swinging from trees, and they started to walk upright, and then they started to build fires and draw and cave. And, you know, you get all this gobbledygook. From what? What evidence do they have about that? They have nothing. Right? They look at these things, and then they interpret it based on a worldview. What is the worldview? The worldview is that this cannot be true. So we must insert our own narrative into this. So this is not myth. Some want to debunk it as myth. It is not myth. It is not false. It is not a fairy tale. And they want to dismiss it as such because it seems unbelievable. Right? Think of if you went to the Ark Encounter. They have a, an exhibit there a wall of all the children's books that show you the Noah's Ark. And every single one of them is a picture of a stupid little boat bouncing around in the waves with animals basically, you know, bursting at the seams outside of the Ark. And you're like, well, that's a dumb-looking picture. How could all those animals fit on the Ark? That's, the big, that's, that's a big question people have. Well, go to the Ark Museum, and they'll tell you why and how all the animals can fit on there. But it's, it's, it's mocked and it's treated as fable. 
So then it, it, it undermines our faith. However, every, every culture, every culture, every, every, every one of those nations that you see in Genesis chapter 10, eventually, when you get to it, you find out they have a story of creation. They have a story of a catastrophe. They have a story of confusion. Where did all those stories come from? comes from the word of God because this is the perfect eyewitness account of all those things. We mentioned earlier that Noah lived well into the years of Abraham, that Shem would have lived and perhaps even outlived Abraham. And you're like, well, that sounds dumb. But think about it. How would Abram know these things? How would this story have been translated to the point where Moses can write it hundreds of years later? Yes, revelation from God, but also, think about this. Abram could have talked to Shem. He could have gotten the account. He could have talked to, to Noah, perhaps. Maybe his ancestors could have talked to Noah. All of these things you've got there, you, you know, we take this for as it is. It is the word of God. These chapters, again, are foundational to the Christian faith. Without them, we have no gospel because all of these genealogies that we see here, specifically in chapter 11, will continue through Scripture and lead us to Christ. If you don't have these stories in Genesis 1 through 11, you don't have Christ. If you don't have, a, if you don't have sin and an explanation of why there's sin in the world, then you don't need a gospel. Nor would we understand the world in which we live. You know, people are still, to this day, trying to make sense of the world in which we live. And it makes perfect sense if you accept what you see here in these opening chapters of Genesis. Why is the world in such a bad state? Because of sin, right? Why do you have all these fossils and rock layers laid out throughout the earth? Because of the flood, a judgment on sin. All these things are foundational for our faith. It's evolution, not evolution in the sense that species change within themselves, but the fact that you can go from one single cell life form to everything that we have now or you can start with a big bang and have everything that you have now. These are the myths. These are the myths. Why? Because you have no evidence of this. You are reading into the facts that you see that everyone looks at and interprets, and you're interpreting them with a grid. You're, you're seeing those through a grid, through a set of glasses that says millions and billions of years, something comes from nothing, life comes from unlife. And then you put those glasses on and you say, oh, yeah, evolution from you know, as they would say, from goo to you via the zoo, right? That's the myth. That's the myth. They're cloaked in scientific language, right? You know, fancy people with letters after their name say these things. And it says, well, it must be true because he's got letters after his name. No. <laughs> because they want to tell us that everything came from nothing and that life comes from non-life. Those are things that are not just scientifically... Um, Ludicrous. They're philosophically and logically ludicrous. They're illogical. Life does not come from non-life. Something does not come from nothing. But if we trust the Bible when it tells us about Jesus and the resurrection, then we can trust the Bible when it says that God created in six days, that God judged the world with a worldwide flood, that God confused the languages in Genesis chapter 11. So this passage, again, closes, as I said, the primeval history section of Genesis and brings us into the patriarchal history that we're going to look at. The line of promise is traced from Noah, again, to Shem, and now to Abram. 
But the problem of sin is still with us. Again, remember, Abram was still a pagan. The problem of sin is still with us. But we're about to see God work through Abram to bring salvation to all the people. He's going to make a promise to Abram. He said, through you, the families of the world will be blessed. How? Through the seed of Jesus Christ. But again, this is our history. This is our history. Now, I mentioned this before, right? You know, we're Gentiles, so we would be descendants of, at least through the flesh, Japheth, right? He is the father of all the peoples that eventually ended up uh, populating in Asia and Eurasia and Europe. So he would be our progenitor, if you will. Uh, We would come off of that branch out of Noah. But because we're children of Abraham by faith, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 4 and Galatians. We are children of Abraham by faith then we're all, in a sense, descendants of Shem. We're all descendants of this line of promise by faith. The gospel seed in Genesis 3.15 is about to bloom into a flower that is called justification by grace through faith in Christ. And that's what we'll see as we explore further along in the book of Genesis. Well, I'll stop here uh, next time, Lord willing, on the 1st of October. Uh, We're going to look at the first uh, nine verses of chapter 12, the call of Abram.